This is an audio recording of the Lendit Fintech Weekly News Show. The show is streamed live on Lendit TV, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at 5 p.m. Eastern Time every Thursday. In this fast-paced show, the Lendit News team and a special guest discuss the most important fintech news stories of the past week. I was having camera troubles. My IT department sent a new webcam. The old one I had had lights on it, so it had better lighting, you know. Yeah. Anyway, Ron, we are we are now live. So <laughs> <laughs> welcome, everybody, to the Lended Fintech Weekly News Show. My name's Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lended Fintech, joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Todd Anderson. How are you doing, Todd? I'm well, Peter. How are you? I'm great. And the person you heard chatting at the intro is none other than Ron Shevlin, Cornerstone Advisors. How are you doing, Ron? Doing great, guys. Thanks a lot for having me back. Great to of have course, you. Of course, great to have you back. Yes, indeed. So so let's kick it off. I mean, I feel like we need to need to sort of start on the the financial impact or the fintech impact of the uh, of the, you know, Russian invasion of uh, of Ukraine. It's obviously causing ripples all around the world and uh, we feel for the the Ukrainian people, but I uh, wanted to kind of start on some of the moves that have been made because in the in 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 a week's time we've just seen an, an amazing um, you know coordination from you know many of the major Western countries and uh, with in, including um, financial sanctions. And the first thing I want to talk about this is an article in American Banker that and others covered this article as well. Visa and Mastercard have um, basically. Um, you know, disallowed the use of their product in Russia, and they have seventy, was it seventy-two percent of the market there? Um, you know, e-commerce using a credit card at, at the local small business, not possible anymore for most for most banks. I'm not saying they hit every bank, but I think the, all the major banks that were part of the the list for the sanctions uh, they've hit, and so. You know the Russian people are hurting, but you know this is uh, it's, it's amazing how quickly this, this happened on Monday. I think so. This has um, really been a, a big week for the financial system and how they've all come together. Thoughts? Visa, and Mastercard are still, uh, you know, obviously big dominant players in uh, around the world. I think the you know the more interesting question, I think long term, at least to me, is you know the with the advent of of crypto and and the ability of, of evading sanctions with crypto on a very small scale, albeit because it's infrastructure can't really handle large scale uh, yet is kind of how that dynamic plays out with the eventual regulatory framework that'll be put around crypto and, and the nervousness that there is in Congress that, you know, they, we, they, there was a lot of power wielded in a pretty short time by U S um you know, I guess legislators and the and the president um, to impact Russia and and their economy, and I know there's a lot of fear in Congress that if crypto were to gain large scale, um, you know, adoption and you know the infrastructure issues get better and they can you know compete on a scale with a, a Visa and Mastercard eventually, is what that means for sanctions and stuff like this, and and will it hurt? You know, one of those big tools that we use uh, in situations like this, which I, I don't know uh, long-term. I think there's lots of people that can argue both sides, but um, you know, it's done pretty rapidly here. Um, and it's still a huge weapon for us when it comes to situations like this around the world. Mm-hmm. 
Ron, what are your thoughts on the Visa MasterCard? Uh, well, Brett moves? King won't be happy because I guess checks could come back to life here. Uh, <laughs> and right. I, mean, I don't mean to make light of the situation, but I guess if you're, you know, the I mean, reality is, is that that's their, you know, the, have the run on cash and uh, they will revert back to, you know, non-card based, uh, rails based forms of payment. You know, what I think is is just kind of really sad about this situation is um, I would venture to guess that the majority of people in Russia don't really want this war. They're the ones being punished for this. And I think the, you know, the, the thing that I just don't know, I'm no political expert, but just can't help but wonder is and believe that um, uh, that Vladimir Putin knew there'd be sanctions, knew what form they would take and either had plans for them or didn't care if it, it had negative ramifications on a wide number of Russians for some period of time. Right. So it's, it's, you know, not, it, it's to some extent, it, it's a, it's a great weapon. It may turn out to be more symbolic than anything else. Uh, Cause I think after a certain period of time, you've, you know, they got to reconsider as who are we really hurting here uh, with yep. these, with the sanctions. Right. Right. Well, I do want, I want to go back to something that Todd was talking about because there was lots of articles written. I actually listened to two podcasts on this topic as well about crypto and its impact on the Russians and Ukrainians. And yeah, we have, there's, there's been some evidence that I've read about where, you know, the um, ruble into Bitcoin is at like an all time high. So people are, individuals are, are taking up uh, Bitcoin as their, as their currency. Um, and you know you've also seen uh, you know in Ukraine lots of lots of donations, crypto donations. I think they're up over fifty million uh, as of last thing I read this morning, as far as donations go. And uh, but the thing that was most interesting to me is that you know they're saying that Bitcoin right now it's not it's not really ready to replace like the the, the Russian central bank is not going to be able to convert their reserves into Bitcoin. That uh, actually said the chain analysis did an interview with one of the. The, the, the crypto firms that really monitor this stuff. And they said there's been no big new big whales come into the market in the last week or two. So it's uh, so clearly they could be putting a small amount in, but but the, the fact is that crypto just isn't, it isn't ready for the scale that like, I think I read like 600 plus billion dollars in, in reserves that much of which is frozen now because of sanctions. If they want to try and put all that into Bitcoin. That's, uh, that's just going <laughs> to be- not going to happen easily. <laughs> Oh, and it can't support, you know, a, a transaction load either. So from a, you know, payments perspective, the, that infrastructure in there either. So uh, not, you know, it's a great approach, but uh, really not ready for prime time. Yeah. And, you know, who knows if this happened in 10 years time when, when you've got a lot of the, you know, when the, the, when there are more payment mechanisms happening and the transaction throughput is, 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 as you know, some of them, you know, is as, as good as Visa and MasterCard. It could be a different story, but we're, this is where we are today. So anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on, uh, on that part of the world. And I know it's a, it's a very challenging time, but there was actually um, more fintech news this week that I want to get to. And first thing I want to talk about is um, earnings. Uh, SoFi had a what was a pretty good earnings report this week and uh, and their stock uh, has bumped up because of it. But interesting that they uh, the revenue was $985 million, up 74% there. Uh, most of that revenue, because keep in mind, SoFi has always talked about um, – their, you know, all, all of the many different products they have, but lending is still the, the core of their business. $764 million out of $985 million in 
lending revenue. And uh, they are profitable, adjusted EBITDA, $30 million for the year. And they added $1.6 million. And Ron, I know we're going to get to your report in a second, but um, I, I do think that so far... You know, they just came off a Super Bowl. Obviously, that wasn't in that. What nothing from the Super Bowl was really in uh, in this earnings was, was fourth quarter. But um, they seem to be in a fairly strong position. Yeah, it's um, you know they've. It, it's funny that they've positioned themselves as if you know lending is not that important to them. But then when you look at the numbers, lending is arguably the most important thing to them. Yeah. So it's it's funny how some of the um, fintechs that have now gone on to to buy banks, which is you know a handful at this stage, uh, the way that they perceive or or at least try to put this um, frame out in the market that they're all these different things, when in reality they're they're closer to a bank, um, and being closer to a bank is the best way that they can make money. Well, our uh, bank now too, <laughs> exactly. And um, you know, it's it's just it's funny how the evolution of fintech has has we're going to attack the bank then we're going to partner with the banks then they buy the bank and they essentially become the bank uh and so i think that that you know kind of where we're at today and where it started is is, is quite a fascinating journey listen guys uh, you know sofi has been around for a good number of years now already and i don't think it's to be surprising to anybody that the lending piece makes up a big chunk uh, of the overall revenue right now but i see i think they're very well positioned to uh, diversify from that revenue. Um, you know, obviously, they've got the banking piece now, mm-hmm. but more importantly to me, and why I'm kind of bullish on them, and I don't mean bullish from a stock price perspective on those stock stock analysts, but just from a kind of a business uh, perspective, strategy perspective, is the think of it as the banking services aspect of it. The you know they had acquired Galileo back what 2019 2020 timeframe. Yep which gave them a lot of payment processing capabilities. And now with the acquisition of Technosys, you know, I think they're really creating an oppor- you know, a, a ability to, to really be a player in the banking as a service space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the banking services, you know, thanks to their lending volume, they've been quietly trying to do, um, uh, you know, selling the loans off to, to the banks themselves in, the, in prior years, um, you know, in, in terms of, um, Oh, I'm forgetting the blanking out on the word, you know, when um, you bundle the, the loans. Securitization. Uh, not the securitizing, but um, when you kind of bundle the, the loans and sell it off. I, I'll think of the, the word, you know, 45 minutes from now. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, they've been trying to do that for a couple of years um, and, you know, kind of partnering with the banks. So, you know, I think they're establishing themselves as, as a, you know, more broadly diversified firm within financial services than just, the, the banking piece. And I think I alluded to you guys that I was doing some forecasts of um, the, the digital banking vendors and, you know, they grew year over year, 65% in terms of number of, you know, banking customers, not lending, but banking customers right. from 2020 to uh, from 2021 to 2022. So um, I'm very bullish. I think they've, um, they're, they're building a really nice set of assets and services beyond just the, the their core lending. Yep. Yep. I also think that the, the aspect of them owning Technosis and Galileo and having insight into the customers who might be their competitors using Technosis or Galileo. And that dynamic of they own the technology that's running their competitors and how their competitors might feel about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. not easy to switch off some of those platforms. So exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I want to move on. I want to talk about the story you wrote this week, Ron, which I thought was really interesting, um, talking about the, the growing domination of some of the digital banks. Um, why don't you just give us some of the highlights from, from that piece? Yeah, I think it's important to note that what I was focusing on and have focused on in a lot of surveys I've done is asking consumers, uh, I ask them a couple of things. I ask them, who do you have accounts with? And I ask, who do you consider to be your primary checking account provider? I don't ask anymore, who's your primary financial institution? Uh, I think consumers today, especially those uh, under the age of 40, uh, if you really count it up, they probably have 30 to 40 different relationships. The Mm -hmm. idea of a primary financial institution does not resonate with a Gen Z or millennial, but they do have perceptions on who they're let's say, primary checking account providers or who their primary brokerage provider, or even their primary payment provider, things like that. So I was focused in on the past couple of years asking, who's your primary financial, uh, primary checking account provider? And if you go back two, three years, the mega banks, Chase, uh, Bank of America, Wells Fargo dominated uh, when I say you know, these are three banks with, you know, nearly three years, two, three years ago with 40 percent of consumers, especially young consumers, saying that one of the three banks was their primary checking account provider. Well, in just two years time frame, the, the mega banks uh, as primary checking account providers, the numbers have divided in half practically mm. And skyrocketed in terms of the percentage, especially of Gen Zers and Millennials, close to three out of 10 Gen Zers and Millennials who now say that a digital bank or a challenger bank or a fintech like Square Cash App or PayPal is their primary checking account provider. And, you know, last year when I published something similar to it and the, the trends were going down for the mega banks. Guys, I was getting emails and phone calls from Bank of America disputing the numbers and wanting to tell me how wrong I was and how they weren't losing customers. And I think it's important that this isn't about people changing and switching and closing out accounts. It's about the emotional side of it, the the the, the assignment of that primary uh, status that's that's really changing. Uh, and it bodes well for the fintechs and the digital banks long term, even though people still have their traditional bank accounts. Right. right. So it's kind of like, yeah, I might have a Chase account, but my paycheck is going into Cash App, even though I might have, you know, maybe a savings or a little bit in Chase, maybe, you know, a couple of bills come out of it. But the bulk of my paycheck goes to Cash App. That's my main checking account. Or you do it the other way around so that if something goes wrong, there's a branch you can go to. Yeah, uh, but your your everyday payment activity is with PayPal or Cash yeah. App or you know or Chime even is another big one, um, and, and so that's it's really changing consumers' behaviors. But I think it's important that it's changing their attitudes and the relationships they have with the digital banks, who used to be the secondary and tertiary accounts and are increasingly becoming the primary accounts. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just how I run my office. I mean, I still have my traditional bank account. I'm, I may never get rid of it because it's just, it's nice to have it as a, uh, you know, as a backup, but all new activity I'm doing through through my FinTech uh, bank. So I think a lot of people, that's, that's going to be the way they'll do it because you still want to have that, 
you may you may want to go and, vi and visit a branch for whatever reason. Uh, uh, you know, and you, it's good to have that as an option still. The one thing one thing I want to actually just highlight, I thought was really interesting, was that community banks you said are showing growth, but credit unions are not. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the current the community banks. Um, I will tell you this: two three years ago, I was, from a retail perspective, I was writing off the the community banks. I thought they were giving up on the retail market, just doubling down on, on commercial and commercial lending in particular. Uh, but I think probably thanks to the pandemic, a couple of things happened. One of them made them rethink you know, where the growth potential in commercial real estate lending was going to be. And second, they were kind of forced to deal with a lot of technology issues because they were so used to, you know, well, you got a problem, come into the branch, talk to Sally. Well, the branch is closed now in you know July 2020, and so it forced them to kind of rethink their technology delivery mm -hmm. and rethink the importance of retail as a growth engine with the, the potential downturn in, in commercial real estate and commercial real estate lending. And so I think what it says to me is that and I put the quote in from Charles Potts, a good buddy who's chief innovation officer at, at the ICBA, and I think he kind of nailed it. He said, look, uh, you know, the digital bank and digital banking may become the preferred way of banking for a lot of people, but clearly it's not everybody. And there are people who still want that relationship and that access to a person that community banks are, are going to give people. I also think that during the, the pandemic, because of the PPP loans, uh, where I think a lot of community banks, you really bent over backwards to get the customers the, their money, that created a lot of goodwill with many consumers. Uh, but interestingly, if you look at the data in the article, uh, community banks were kind of growing their share across all um, generational uh, uh, cohorts there. So right. even among the Gen Zs and Gen Zs and millennials. So not everybody's flocking to Chime, PayPal and, and Cash App. Um, I think the credit unions are suffering because I don't think in many cases all of their uh, all of them have technology that's living up to uh the, the digital banking capability of a lot of the big banks and digital banks. And quite frankly, and I know I'm going to get a lot of heat from this from credit union people, uh, I don't think the we have nicer people and we're not for profit and cooperative story is really resonating with a growing number of people. Right, right. Anyway, let's move on. I want to talk about a couple of things, a couple of stories about Buy Now, Pay Later that came out this week. We had Zip. Um, which used to be called QuadPay. Uh, now they're an Australian company. They came out and bought Sezzle, um, which is another buy now, pay later platform. $356 million is uh, is the price there. Uh, looks they haven't bought them. They haven't, they're intending to buy. The deal is expected to close in Q3. Um, and, you know, the combined company is going to have 13.3 million customers, which is, you know, it's not it's it's not it's not an insignificant number, um, but uh, you know they are they're going up against some some Goliath. So it's it's to me it's it's logical sort of outcome of uh, having going up against some of the, the biggest names in the industry. There's going to be consolidation at the lower end. Yeah, there's just too many BMPL firms to for them all to survive, and eventually this was a natural uh, way for them to go just combined because, you know, a firm is taking such a dominant space in the market, you know, uh block or square is acquired Afterpay, which is a, uh, you know, slowly becoming a, a behemoth in, in fintech uh, if it isn't already. And so it's, uh, you know, natural 
Um, for the smaller players, I think the the other key piece there is what the CFPB is looking at, which is um, you know the BMPL practices and and how they might be reported and um, you know credit and um, you know credit reporting related to that and and what that means for a lot of these companies and what that might mean for credit scores and and how safe um, you know these transactions really are for consumers. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's probably not a smart idea for me to like disagree with either of you. It might impact my uh, chances of ever getting invited back. But <laughs> That's okay. I, disagree gonna, away. I'm going to like challenge you on this one, Todd, because you know, first of all, I don't think there are too many BNPL providers. I think the problem is that they're all doing the same thing. Right. Uh, often, you know, I, I try to tell the banks who want to get into BNPL that it's not as easy as it looks. It's not a matter of just simply after somebody's made a purchase to say, okay, did you want to split that purchase over, you know, four payments or whatever it is? What what the smart players like Klarna, uh, Afterpay, um, and to a large extent a firm really, un- I think, understand about buy now, pay later is that it's a tool that influences people's choices of products and providers. It's 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 more of a sales tool than it is a payment mechanism. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one. And if you look uh, at Klarna, who I know, Peter, you may be teeing up next because they <laughs> announced you know, huge losses. Despite those losses, I, I do think they're doing a lot of smart things and building out a, you know, a, a commerce eco- ecosystem around buy now, pay later. That's pretty impressive. Um, but they're, they understand that their value is not to the consumer after the purchase, it's to the merchant before the purchase right. yeah. and get people to, to do that now. So why I'm disagreeing with you, Todd, is that I think the path that the BNPL space will take is specialization in certain areas. I think you'll get, you know, a good good example of this is a Lone Star in the Philadelphia area who really knows the, the HVAC and, you know, home heating space. They know how to, how, how to sell. Um, you know, BNPL or, you know, point of sale financing, you know, for people who, you know, for, for providers of those kinds of services. So I think, you know, and there's another one and they'll kill me for uh, forgetting their name who focuses on dental and medical, you know, um, procedures that are, um, you know, not covered by insurance. So, you know, there's a market that they learn how to sell certain things. And I think the problem today is everybody's going after the e-commerce retail space. But there's a lot of, you know, more opportunities to introduce BNPL as a sales tool and not just a payment mechanism across a lot of different areas. I don't think we've started to see that specialization just yet. Uh, But I do think the winners are going to be those that kind of build that ecosystem like Klarna are, are, are doing. And to Todd's point, at least, I mean, I think there's only so many paying for generic you know, mass market um, BNPL platforms that we're going to see. But I think, as you're right, specialization is certainly coming. But I want to get on to Klarna. Klarna um, re- reported earnings or, you know, they did their, uh, and they're not a public company, but they still provide um, some um, insight into what's going on in their business. They now serving 147 million active customers. I mean, that to me is just mind-blowing that's global they're big they're, they're, they started in they're a swedish company that's really big in europe they're becoming really big in this country and uh that that's uh that's just a, an astounding number of active customers up 70 percent year over year but their credit losses 
500 million US dollars roughly um, and their actual operating losses 730 million dollars on revenue of 1.4 billion so they they are um, <laughs> they're certainly not not not, on, not not close to profitability um, and they're still a private company but they've, they've also raised a boatload and I'm sure they could probably raise another billion if they wanted to but uh, they in, they they are really becoming I think the worldwide the global leader in the space. I think in one of the articles, I think it was maybe the Financial Times I read, <clears throat> Klarna Mita made it to a point to say that you know part of the credit losses uh, were due to uh, the investments that they've been making, uh, and that you know it's uh, something that it's not going to be long term. Uh, so we'll see. But I mean, clearly, Peter, they they are um, the dominant player. Uh, today um, in the market and, and to Ron's point earlier, uh, which I certainly agree with, which is the, um, you know, the ecosystem side uh, and the merchant side um, of that market. Um, and they've just done a phenomenal, phenomenal job. Yeah. Two quick comments on this guys. No, number one is the 147 million customers that you mentioned, Peter, are probably the same 33 million that Zetzel and Zip have and the same 56 million that firm had. I think there's just a lot of overlap here in yep. terms of number yeah. of customers. I've used multiple ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of the people who do use, who the uh, number of consumers who use buy now, pay later will use, you know, so there's no loyalty necessarily to the, to the, to the BNPL provider. The, the loyalty is to the merchant. Mm -hmm. um, the other piece towards the, to the profitability is, it kind of reminds me of Amazon. You know, how long, how many years did Amazon report losses, huge losses, you know, building out their platform strategy? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Bezos every year would just say, you don't like it, screw you, too bad, you know, we're moving <laughs> on, you know, he had his vision. And I can't help but wonder, and I don't know that, you know, it's the similar story, but it just kind of evokes the same thing. It's like, Klarna's got its strategy, it's building out this ecosystem, it's going global. And I think, you know, it's interesting. They they seem to be like they produced one chart that was just totally incomprehensible. I don't know if you saw this, trying to explain that. Well, if we had grown at the same amount as this year and last year, we would have had less. It was like totally incomprehensible stuff. I think they just try to obfuscate the the losses to some extent. But uh, you know, I, I think they're on a mission. Uh, I think there's a lot of growth opportunity there. I'm 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 not as uh, worried about the losses as, as some observers are. Yep. Okay. And, and they know they can probably raise X, you know, whatever amount of money they need relatively quickly. They know they can do that, which is why they're making yep. such big investments yep. knowing, all right, we'll just tap the credit markets. Again. Yeah. That's why I said they're in no hurry to do an IPO because they don't need to. Um, yep. They've, they've, uh, they can, they can tap the private markets whenever they want. So anyway, let's move on to Goldman Sachs. There was some news this week about their, uh, they have they have converted all, all the GM um, card holders, General Motors. Uh, they they've taken over managing the General Motors credit card from Capital One. Uh, Three million customers now coming into the Goldman umbrella under Marcus. That takes Marcus the, the number of customers they have to thirteen million. And you know they I don't know what they, they don't get talked about. I mean it's hard to imagine that Goldman Sachs is like a quiet achiever in this space, but they certainly don't get as much um, of the the press that I read is some of the other big names that, uh, that that seem to be more sexy in the in the press anyway. But this is in the you know the Goldman Goldman are playing 
you know, they're, they're, they're playing the consumer bank and, you know, Stephanie Cohen did the rounds this week uh, and she's, uh, she's plugged. She's going to be speaking at our, at our USA <laughs> event in May. She's the head of the co-head of the consumer bank uh, at Goldman. And she also talked about the fact that they're making a huge embedded finance play. And that's what this is. This is embedded finance at a grand scale when you're, you're partnering with General Motors. And, and other shameless plug, I have um, a former head of product at Marcus, Adam Dell, on my podcast next week. Um, <laughs> so coming out in a week, and he had just glowing things to say about how Marcus operates and um, you know how different Goldman was compared to what he thought it might have been when he first, you know, when they first acquired uh, Clarity Money, and uh, just the vision that they have for the Marcus brand and. Uh, obviously, some of that is, has played out already, and um, you know we've talked to many, many people over there at Goldman, um, at least on the market side of things, and um, you know they have a lot of interesting things planned for the the coming years. And like you said, it doesn't seem like they get talked about in the same way as some of the other fintech brands, um, but you know they are certainly one to be reckoned with. Yeah, I couldn't agree, Warren. It, to me, it's it's kind of funny that. Uh, what we used to call uh, co-branded credit cards are now being called embedded finance. Right. But, you know, more than that, though, I, I and I don't mean to downplay what they're doing because, you know, I look at things like their partnership with Amazon and how they, uh, you know, are kind of moving into the small business lending. They kind of took over yep. the the, um, the the cash advances, the merchant cash advances, and, the, you know, got into the, the small business lending side. I mean, that's that you know, it's not just the payment side uh, from the credit card; it's it's on the lending side as well, uh, and they're building on you know the base of customers that they had acquired over years when they offered the savings accounts with the premium uh, interest rates for a good number of years. So uh, they have really become a powerhouse in, in the fintech space, and you know, pretty impressive growth. Yep. Yep, I, I I totally agree. And keep in mind, we don't have even mentioned the Apple Card, which is a, another big, big uh, Goldman Sachs initiative there. Anyway, we're, we're running out of time, but uh, I do want to just uh, get to um, New Bank. There was a really interesting interesting piece in Financial Brand this week about New Bank, and uh, you know they they are the world's largest digital bank. His, the numbers weren't completely up to date in this article, but you know when you look at their at their earnings, fifty four million customers um, New Bank has all in Latin America and um, you know, they are the world's largest digital bank uh, as far as number of customers. The thing that I thought was most interesting in this whole article was David Velez talking about going and starting and opening branches. This is a, so we might be going from you know, from branches opening digital to digital opening branches. I thought that was really interesting. I'll jump in then, Todd, if you're not going to. Uh, Go first it. of all, I don't know if you guys saw, but um, Financial Brand changed that. So I don't know if you caught the Twitter conversation today. Brett King kind of jumped in and uh, said, hey, what about WeBank in China? I'm pretty sure it's bigger in terms of number of customers. And so Financial yep. Brand uh, did did sort of tweak the title of its uh, one of the, the, the biggest digital banks. So they kind of tweaked that a bit. But, you know, not surprising about the, the branches. I mean, look at well, even Amazon, you know, biggest e-commerce seller. And then they opened up bookstores, which now they say they're going to close. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but so it, it's the same thing with, with a new bank or any digital bank. They may hit a point in time where it makes sense to create physical presence and uh, maybe it makes sense at some point five years from now that, um, you know, it, it, it changes. It's, you know, they're in Latin America. It's a very different kind of market, uh, in, especially in terms of technology development. 
Uh, do we have time for a really quick story, Peter? We can get, sure, go ahead. So years ago, I was doing some consulting and was doing work for a uh, Pepsi bottler that was based in Miami. And we were down in um, uh, Brazil, uh, not Rio, um, Sao Paulo, mm -hmm. and uh, waiting for a meeting to get out. And when we went into the meeting, there were a bunch of business cards still on the table, and they were from Coca-Cola representatives. So I said to my client, I said, isn't this like collusion? You working with Coca-Cola? And he laughed. He goes, this is Brazil. We don't have those kind of laws. He said, what's important is, you know, right now there's no market for Coke and for, for soda in, in Brazil. We have to build the market. And so the similar thing here is, you, you know, New Bank, they say, listen, we've got to build, a, you know, a banking market. Uh, and the way to do it is through branches in certain geographies and locations. And so uh, not surprising to see that they would do it. It's probably, you know, what they need and they're smart, uh, you know, to figure out how to best grow the grow the business. Right. Thanks for giving me that uh, 30 seconds there. I tried yeah. to get it through fast. So that's okay. We do, we, we do need to wrap though. Um, yeah. Ron, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. Todd, thanks as always. Thank you to the, and you're welcome back anytime, regardless of disagreement, yes, Ron. Exactly. Thanks well, guys. And thank you. <laughs> thank and you. Uh, we'll be back uh, same time next week. Have a great weekend, everybody. See ya.